So this reading comes from chapter 4 of Luke, so a few chapters before what we heard this morning. Begins at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the word of the Lord. So we are in Luke's gospel. Today we'll be in Luke's gospel for quite a while. It's a good one. Something to remember when you read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any of the four of them, is that there's some differences in all of them. They each kind of have their own way that they tell the story about Jesus. And at first glance, someone might say, well, uh, they're inconsistent. What is this? Why does one say this and one say this? But if you go to seminary and you go to somewhere we have a decent New Testament professor, they'll tell you that all the differences in each of the Gospels was an intentional choice made by the person writing that Gospel. So that every little detail in the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, from what stories they include to what order they put the stories in, were an intentional choice that they made in order to most effectively tell the story, the good news, the Gospel about Jesus. They're all put there to tell us who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So anytime we come to a reading from a book like Luke, it's important for us to remember this. None of these stories or details are incidental to what the author is trying to say. And where each of those stories fits in the big story they're trying to tell, it matters. So this brings us to Luke chapter 4 and Luke's gospel. So if you go back to the very beginning of Luke, and beginnings of books are important, right? Pay attention in the beginning. It's setting the tone for what's to come. Luke tells us from the very first chapter that he's writing what he calls, this quotes, an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. An orderly account. So Luke's telling us at the very beginning what he's actually trying to do. Meaning that he's taken all of these stories he's heard about Jesus and learned and put them in a really particular place in his gospel. So before we talk about Luke 4, let's take a minute to think about what's happening in the big picture of this orderly account that Luke's giving us of Jesus's life. So Luke chapter 1 and 2, there we find the birth story of Jesus. So like Christmas, this is like all the Christmas readings, they come out of Luke. Luke gives us like a ton of information about this because he thinks it's important. He has all the information about Mary, so one of the theories is actually that Luke knew Mary. 
and talked to her and sat down and interviewed her before writing his gospel. So we get all the Christmas stuff, and then uh, we actually get the only childhood account of Jesus in any of the gospels. And it's a kind of funny one. It's the one where Mary and Joseph lose Jesus as they go back home from the temple in Jerusalem. I did not understand how they could do that until I had a child myself. It's like, okay, it's kind of easy to do. They kind of run off and do their own thing, and they get excited about things. So then in Luke 3, John the Baptist shows up for the second time. We had baby in the womb, John the Baptist. That's in Luke 2. That's in some of those Christmas stories about Mary before Jesus is born. But this time in Luke 3, John the Baptist comes and does his ministry thing, and he baptizes Jesus. And then Luke decides to give us a genealogy telling us who Jesus is, going all the way back to Adam. And then in Luke 4 is where Jesus' ministry as an adult really kicks off. So the beginning of the chapter is Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And then we get our passage today, where Luke very briefly tells us about Jesus' healing ministry that he has after his temptation in Galilee, in the region that he grew up in, and then his return to his hometown of Nazareth, where he goes to the synagogue, which kind of think like going to church, right, with a bunch of people that he knew. And there he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads where it talks about the ministry of the coming Messiah. And then he tells everyone that that scripture that day has been fulfilled, basically in himself, in their presence. So, Based on this whole thing about Luke writing this orderly account about Jesus' life, the question is, why did Luke put this story here in his gospel? And why does he describe it in such detail? This is always a good question to ask when you read the gospels. Why is this here? Why did they put it here? And from what I can tell is that Luke put this passage where it is, right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and describes this scene in so much detail because right here at the start, Jesus is actually telling us and telling everyone who is there in that synagogue what it is he's come to do. Meaning that as you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you need to have this passage from Isaiah in your mind. Luke's saying, this is all the stuff that this guy I'm talking about is going to do in the pages that are ahead. So it might be good then uh, when we have, you know, Jesus telling us here in the words of Scripture what his ministry is about to listen and pay attention to what he's saying, right? Anytime Jesus is saying, hey, this is what I'm doing, pretty good idea, you know, listen, take a minute, think about it, don't skip over it. And not just for what it means for when we read Luke and put on our, you know, biblical scholar Bible study hat, but actually what it means for us today and our life today. So Jesus walks into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And these are the words that he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what does this passage from Isaiah 61 tell us about Jesus and his earthly ministry? Well, first, it gives us a pretty clear idea of who Jesus is, which, as we heard in Luke 9, is a pretty important 
question, right? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this passage from Isaiah, it tells us that God's spirit is on Jesus, meaning that Jesus says and does the will of his Father who is in heaven. So we read in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love that verse. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning that when we look at Jesus, we see God. What we see Jesus do, that is God doing it. Jesus himself puts it this way in John 14 when he's talking to Philip and Philip asks him to show us the Father. And Jesus' answer is, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. And so adding to this idea that Jesus is anointed by God for the work he's going to do. It's not just that God is, God's spirit is on him, but the anointing of God's spirit is on Jesus for his ministry. And so both the titles for Jesus, Messiah in Hebrew, and Christ in Greek. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing, different languages. They simply mean anointed one, the one who God has set apart for the work that he's going to do, meaning that Jesus was anointed and chosen by God before the foundation of the world to come and to save us. So Jesus came to tell the good news of God's mercy and favor and forgiveness to those who are poor and downtrodden, inviting them to come without cost and to buy from God's storehouses of grace. And just look at Jesus' own family or disciples or the lepers or the ill who had no other way to make money or to feed themselves than to beg for it, the ones whom Jesus spent most of his time with, the poor and the downtrodden. That's who Jesus sought out. But Jesus also preached good news to those who were spiritually poor, meaning the Pharisees who thought they were spiritually rich but were not, and the scribes and all of those people, and people like the rich young ruler who thought he had it figured out, who thought he'd kept all the commandments, and that was good enough. But it wasn't. They rejected that message. And of course, it's no accident that Jesus later says in Luke, in his sermon on the plain, blessed are the poor. And in Matthew, adds blessed are the poor in spirit, because both are true. Jesus came for both of them. And Jesus came to bring healing. Yes, the recovery of sight for the blind, like Isaiah mentions, but it's more than that. And you see this throughout Jesus's ministry, from the blind to lepers to paralytics and invalids, and even to a man who was dead and had been buried in a tomb for days. And as the King James says so wonderfully, he stinketh. No joke, look it up. Excellent. <laughs> Even to a dead guy, Jesus brought healing and life. And just like with the poor thing, not just physical healing, but spiritual healing is what Jesus brought too. And Jesus came to free those who are in captivity and all those who are oppressed. So throughout his ministry, we see Jesus setting people free from captivity and oppression of a spiritual kind, casting out demons of a guy who was in a graveyard cutting himself and putting Satan and all the forces of evil to flight before him. 
And of course, the greatest single act of Jesus's ministry is one of setting the captives free, which was in liberating us from sin and death by his own death and resurrection. I love this idea too in Isaiah 61, that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Meaning that anyone who is in Christ, Jesus by his living, his dying, and his rising again, has secured God's favor for us. And it's free. It's free. And of course, these words from Isaiah are true of what Jesus did in the pages of Scripture, in his life on earth long ago. Jesus is the same today as he was then. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning that those words are true for us too. And I forget that. I'm talking to like churchy people here. Like, right, we forget this. I feel convicted of this often. Like we forget Jesus is here and he's doing things in people's lives. I was talking with John Orsell. We have a testimony today. And like, what a great thing to have people stand up and say what God is doing in their life because we can forget right? We forget that God is present and working in us. So what is Jesus doing today? Well, Jesus is doing the same thing that he's always done. He's still in the business of bringing God's good news and mercy to people who are poor, be it in physical poverty or spiritual poverty. And Jesus is still bringing healing. Jesus still does this. A few weeks ago, I actually had someone come up to me at church at St. Peter's and tell me that a few weeks before they had come to our midweek service, it's a communion service where we pray for people and anoint them with oil for healing. And he told me that he came to one of these services. He didn't remember you know, which one of us priest people was there, but that he had been healed. And I was just kind of like, huh? It's funny, like I'm standing in church, like, you know, dressed like this, and it's like, what? Like, God, God, God heals people at that? You know, it's like in our lunch hour Wednesday, and the whole time you're mostly thinking about, like, what am I going to eat? Because I'm really hungry now, you know, because I have to eat a late lunch. You're not thinking that the Holy Spirit is going to show up, you know? You're not always attuned to that every single week. And it's just so easy to forget that Jesus does this stuff, but he does. But it's not just the physical thing, right? Jesus brings healing to our souls and our hearts, to hearts that have been broken or wounded or saddened by sin and the horrific things that it can do to us. Jesus brings healing to marriages that have grown apart and distant, to families that are broken and fractured and relationships that have been torn apart by our sinfulness and by our brokenness. And Jesus gives sight to our blindness, to our spiritual blindness. I always love that passage in Ezekiel. It's God's promise to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to give us a new heart. And with a new heart comes new eyes to see the world. Not as we see the world, with us being at the center of it, but we're freed to see the world as Jesus sees the world, to be moved by the things that moved Jesus. And Jesus, too, is still at work setting captives free, freeing people from oppression that is both spiritual and physical. It is Juneteenth. It's no accident. I didn't write the sermon for today, but it's in there, right? 
and the voices who have fought against slavery and oppression in the world. Thankfully, so many of them are Christian voices who hear the words of Jesus and act on it. And of course, that work is still not done, right? There's more people in slavery now than at any point in human history. But there are Christians around the world working to bring freedom and life. And of course, too, Jesus frees us from spiritual oppression and captivity. Jesus laid down his life as a ransom, a ransom, a price to buy us out of slavery, to set us free. And as Jesus himself says in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free. You are truly free. Though sometimes we forget the freedom that we have. I'd imagine that in this room, if we like, sat around and talked about it, that most of us at one time, in one way or another, have seen and experienced this kind of work that Jesus does. Either in our own life or in the life of someone that we know, we've seen it happen. So maybe we were met by Jesus in our own poverty. Maybe it's physical poverty or a lack of something that we've asked and God has met a need that we were worried about or fearful of. Or maybe it's been our spiritual poverty. Or maybe we've been healed in some way by Jesus' presence in our own lives. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be in our soul. Or maybe Jesus has set us free from spiritual oppression and our own captivity to one sin or another sin or a pattern of living that we did not want to be in anymore. And yet the thing that struck me in this passage in Luke 4, and thinking about Jesus' mission and his power to fulfill that mission, even today, is how easy it is for us to forget it. It's so easy. How in the day-to-day grind of life that it's easy to lose sight of all the things that Jesus has healed within myself and the captivity that he's freed me from. I mean, think about it. This all sounds great on Sunday. What about like Wednesday at like three o'clock? You know, middle of the work week, you're exhausted. Like you're leaving work to go home and also have to do a bunch of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? When you're just trying to scrape by, it's so easy to forget that this is who Jesus is. And the fact that not only that Jesus has worked in our lives before, but that Jesus actually is present always in the here and now, and wants to do this work all the time. It's really easy for us who have tasted and seen the goodness of God in Jesus to forget who he is. But these words from Isaiah, I think, are a call for us to remember and try to remember over and over who Jesus is. This is Jesus telling us, This is who I am and what I do. Where I am and I go, these are the things that I do. So it's a call for us to remember the work that God has done in us and the healing and freedom that Jesus has brought us. And to see maybe with new eyes today that Jesus stands ready as he always is to do this work yet again. And I know too there might be folks here who have not known Jesus in this way. And well, that was all of us at one point or another, right? 
and remember that version of you. But if that is you today, Jesus' word to you is an invitation to come to him, to come to him. Love Jesus' words, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites you to come to him today with whatever it is you may lack or whatever is weighing on you in order to be set free from it and to be made well, to feel the peace of God's favor, which he has already secured by Jesus' death and resurrection that he now freely offers to you. And so I'll close with this. And I'm mostly talking to us churchy folks again. The message about Jesus that we have, the good news, the gospel, it's so easy for us to kind of reduce it to some kind of feel-good statement or religious platitude. And that is not what the gospel is at all. The gospel is the good news of God for the power of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. The word in Romans 1 is actually the same word we get dynamite from. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the good news that even in our poverty and in our sickness and in our captivity, God did not run away from us, but he ran towards us. That God still found us in that state and thought we were worthy of dying for and laying down his life for. The gospel is the truth that Jesus shed his blood to set us free and that there's power in that blood to make us all well and whole. It's easy enough for us who already know the gospel to forget how incredible this is. And I'm 100% guilty of it. I will admit it freely. And it's why we need to be reminded of it again and again, week after week. It's why we come here to this place, because we forget it between Sunday and Sunday so often. But what's also true is that the world that we live in, in that week between Sundays, whether it knows it or not, is absolutely starving for the good news of Jesus. Absolutely starving, literally starving for this good news. So my prayer for us, and really for anyone who believes in Jesus, but particularly us this morning, is that the more and more we come to know who God is, who Jesus is, who his heart is, the more God works in us and gives us Jesus's eyes and Jesus's own heart, the more we know his love and his healing and his freedom, that we would then share that great gift and treasure with a world that is desperate for that good news. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a few moments to respond to what God is saying to us. Father, we thank you that Jesus, your son, makes you known to us. That Jesus, you are God in flesh like ours. Lord, that you came to seek and to save what is lost. Lord, that you sought us out and you love us. And Father, now we hold before you all of the things that need your healing in our lives and in our hearts. We give them to you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that this day we would see you as you truly are in all of your goodness, love, and mercy. And Lord, we do ask that as you heal us, 
and continue to make us well and whole that we could not help but bring others to you.